millions of people every day are reaping the health benefits of using cannabis oil, also known as CBD. This new product derived from hemp has fascinated doctors and scientists around the world for its powerful effects on the human body. If you are in need of alternative methods for health empowerment, please visit www.naturalhempoil.com. That's naturalhempoil.com. CBD is now legal in over 40 states, and our products are non-psychoactive and contain less than 0.3% THC levels. We also offer products for household pets. Naturalhempoil.com does not claim to treat cancer, PTSD, epilepsy, anxiety, insomnia, joint pain, eczema, or any chronic condition that you may have been diagnosed with. Please consult with a doctor before you take CBD. Results may vary, so give our natural CBD a try at www.naturalhempoil.com. That's naturalhempoil.com. Visit naturalhempoil.com. That's naturalhempoil.com. Energy bills are rising at a historic rate, and there's no end in sight. Talk to enough people, and you'll soon realize nearly everyone's shocked at their recent electricity bills. Some studies reveal energy costs have skyrocketed by as high as 60% in as little as two years. That's why tens of thousands are installing this magical little device from SavePowerBills.com to help slash their energy bills. This sophisticated gadget stabilizes electrical currents, reduces dirty electricity, and helps protect your appliances and electronics. Simply plug it into your home wall outlet to help lower energy consumption and ultimately help reduce your power bills every month. Countless five-star reviews back up the notion that this device is one of the most efficient ways to save money while beating the greedy power companies. But there's more. If you order now, you'll also receive 65% off, fast shipping within the USA, hassle-free returns, and last but not least, a 60-day satisfaction guarantee. Just go to SavePowerBills.com to take advantage of this limited-time deal before they sell out. Once again, that's SavePowerBills.com. Violent crime across the U.S. has skyrocketed. Just recently, a politician was carjacked by three armed attackers outside his home in Washington, D.C. This comes several months after another politician was assaulted in the elevator of her building. Between mass shootings, kidnappings, burglaries, and carjackings, it's never been more vital to learn how to protect yourself. This is why tens of thousands are choosing the Fighter Flare Flashlight. The Fighter Flare Flashlight has awed people with a wonderful design and massive light output. On top of an ultra-bright 800-lumen light, it boasts powerful strobe lighting modes for self-defense, a glass breaking hammer, a built-in power bank, solar-powered recharging, rope cutter, siren, and much more. Countless five-star reviews back up the notion that this flashlight is the latest and greatest in the EDC market. But there's more. If you place your order for the Fighter Flare flashlight now, you'll also receive 66% off, free express shipping, and last but not least, a 100% lifetime guaranteed replacement. Simply go to www.fighterflare.com to take advantage of this limited-time deal before they sell out. www.fighterflare.com. Order now. Something wicked is coming this way, and only fools are ignoring the signs. So it's time you became a financial prepper like thousands of others. Gold can travel anywhere. It's international. It's its own currency. Allocate to gold now, the timeless safe haven asset. Open an IRA with noble gold investments to physically hold coins and bars and let real, tangible gold, not just paper, save your portfolio as the economy burns again. Right now, Noble Gold Investments offers a free 3-ounce silver American virtue coin with every qualified IRA. Just use the promo code GOLD to claim your free coin and secure your family's financial future. 
future. Go to noblegoldinvestments.com. Now, noblegoldinvestments.com. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Investing in precious metals, including gold, involves risks. Consult with your tax attorney or financial professional before making an investment decision. All right, what's up, ladies and gentlemen? Nick Moe Cedar here, and we are live. And I know I've been MIA the past uh, week or so. My mom's in town. My brother was here last week. I got a lot going on. All right, and I've been out of the loop on a lot of other stories, but of course, I've been plugged into the election fraud stuff because that's my bread and butter, baby. And we've got a very big week for Arizona. Uh, Abraham Hamaday, the Republican attorney general candidate, he's going back to court in just a few minutes seeking a new trial. We covered the trial, uh, the initial trial, which was dismissed for a lack of evidence. Uh, but he is seeking a new trial on the basis that Katie Hobbs withheld the recount results from Pinal County, uh, which netted him hundreds of votes and made the margin of victory between himself and Chris um, Chris Mays. Only 280 votes, the closest election in Arizona history. Okay, so the fact that Katie Hobbs withheld the evidence and um, he has evidence regarding provisional ballots, that is his basis for seeking a new trial. Um, and his argument is very simple, right? He basically believes that Maricopa County erroneously canceled the voter registration of numerous hundreds, if not thousands of legal voters in Maricopa County. So when they went to vote, they were told, hey, you're not registered to vote. And we know that 70 percent of the people that showed up on Election Day were Republicans. So this was happening uh, overwhelmingly to Republicans. And so Abe Holiday believes that this was illegal. And that these 9,000 provisional ballots just sitting in Maricopa County are a, a, a lot of them are from legal registered voters that had their ballots not counted. So he's going to court saying, uh, you know, we have new evidence. Katie Hobbs withheld evidence and we want a new trial. And all we want is for you to count up those provisional ballots. And we think if you do that, then I'll be declared the winner. So very simple, right? And this would easily meet the clear and convincing standard of evidence that is required, I guess, in Arizona when you make an election challenge. Okay, so we have that. It's coming up in just a few minutes. But before we get into that, I want to talk about Kerry Lake because that's the other big thing. Kerry Lake is going to trial tomorrow um, to argue that Maricopa County did not follow the legal process when they conducted their signature review and therefore illegally counted thousands of mail-in ballots with bad signatures, well over the 17, 18,000 uh, vote margin of victory, right? So her trial's going on for four, uh, three days from Wednesday through Friday. And of course, of course, we're going to try to live stream all three days. Now with family and my wife's work schedule and the baby, uh, it's a little up in the air, but I'm going to do my best. Okay. at the We're definitely going to cover tomorrow, 100%. <laughs> Someone says, I look extra red today. Are you bringing some fire? Yes, the MAGA ginger is here. And I, I got sunburnt yesterday. I went golfing with my mom's boyfriend, and it was really fun. And then we went to the zoo. So I was in the sun all day. And yes, I'm a little crispy, which just makes me look more gingery. All right, but that's a good thing because I'm the MAGA ginger, right? So anyways, we're going to try to live stream Carrie Lake's trial. Um, and now I, I want to give you guys some commentary. So I watched the hearing on Friday, right, the oral argument, and I've been reading up on some of the documents from this judge, and if I'm going to be 100% honest with you guys, 
And mind you, I don't sugarcoat anything. I don't, you know, I, 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 I'm not going out of my way to be pessimistic here. It's just based on the facts as I see it. Uh, the truth is, I'm not nearly as optimistic about Kerry Lake's case as I am Abraham Hamaday. And I'll explain why. Okay, before we get into the, you know, the so-called black pilling, my perspective on why I'm not so optimistic, uh, let me just say, you know, uh, on a lighter note, the good news is that regardless of how Judge Thompson rules in Kerry Lake's case, there's still going to be tons of evidence put on the record for everybody to see. Hundreds of thousands of people are going to see exactly how the election fraud took place. And we already had we already had a ton of new revelations brought forth on Friday during the oral argument that took place. For one thing, we learned, and this was new, we didn't know this uh, back when Carrie Lake had her, her trial in December, right? We learned that after the machines were certified, Maricopa County went back and secretly tested the machines after the certification date, right? And uh, during the secret testing, 260 of the tabulators failed, right? But despite that, they went ahead and used those very same machines knowing that they would fail on election day, right? So that proves criminal malfeasance right there. Election tampering. This is most likely when the settings were altered on the machines to make them more sensitive so that they would reject ballots, right? And, you know, this caused massive voter disenfranchisement. So we learned that. We also learned on Friday um, that, you know, because Kurt Olson gave a presentation. Remember that Kerry Lake was arguing for two counts to go to trial. One was regarding the signature verification, and the other was regarding uh, the logic and accuracy testing, right? And so in support of this motion for reconsideration on the logic and accuracy testing count, Kurt Olson brought up the fact that Scott Jarrett, uh, Maricopa County Election Director, lied under oath during the original trial. You know, back in December, he said that the 19-inch ballots printed on 20-inch paper was the result of technical staff selecting a button, click uh, fit to page, right, or shrink to fit, you know, on the printer settings. And we know that this is 100% false. For one thing, Clay Parikh, Kerry Lake's expert, uh, he already explained to us that this is a, a completely impossible and a nonsensical explanation, right? Because this would have had to occurred either by somebody with administrator-level access altering the settings on the printers or somebody with remote access altering the settings, right? But, you know, so we had Clay Parikh explain to us how Scott Jarrett is lying and his explanation doesn't hold up at all. But we also had, and Kurt Olson brought this up, the uh, a second expert commissioned by Maricopa County themselves that reaffirmed this fact, right? Kurt Olson brought up the McGregor report, uh, which was commissioned by Maricopa County's attorney's office, right? And here's what's interesting. If you guys follow me on Substack, I actually wrote up this Substack highlighting exactly what we're about to talk about. And the Substack was shared by Carrie Lake, uh, Carrie Lake's War Room on Twitter, Wendy Rogers, and Clay Parikh actually reached out to me about it, which means that he saw it. And I, I think that, uh, you know, Carrie Lake's legal team, they caught on to this based on our Substack, which was, was a proud moment for me because we contributed something 
to the effort to expose the election fraud, right? So the McGregor report, the uh, Maricopa County conducted their own internal investigation to find out why the machines failed on election day. And in that report that they published, tucked away on page 12, was uh, Ruth McGregor, a former Arizona Supreme Court justice who did this investigation. She said out of the, I think it was 12 printers that they randomly selected, four out of the 12 were randomly spitting out 19-inch ballot images on 20-inch paper. And no technical person could explain why this occurred. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, that just confirms that these printers were programmed to print 19-inch ballots on 20-inch paper, and that Scott Jarrett is a bold-faced liar. Or, unbeknownst to himself, he was given some talking points by bad actors to say it was a, a, a matter of shrink to fit, right? Ruth McGregor, she proved that these, uh, these ballot-on-demand printers were rigged up to print 19-inch ballot images on 20-inch paper so that the machines would reject them on election day and cause massive voter disenfranchisement, right? So, anyways, we, ha we have all this proof. You know, all the proof in the world that the election was intentionally engineered to result in a Katie Hobbs victory, right? And that's the good news. It's all on the record. Everybody sees it. But, and here's where the black pills come in. So if you want hopium, I suggest you cover your ears. After Kurt Olson put all this on the record to try to make a case for why that second count should go to trial as well, the judge denied this motion, and uh, which means that none of the things I just talked about are going to be relevant to the trial. And the reason that he dismissed this count is because of the clear and convincing standard of proof that he himself has set. Okay? This is the standard. Uh, the legal standard, the burden of proof that Carrie Lake has to meet in order for this election to be overturned, right? Back at the first trial, um, you know, the, the, the judge said that Carrie Lake must prove, using a mathematical basis, clear and convincing outcome-altering fraud that was intentional to rig the election. An insanely high burden, right? And Carrie Lake, in her appeal challenged this with the appellate court and the Arizona Supreme Court, right? She said, this is not the correct legal standard. This is, as you know, this legal standard, clear and convincing, is what you would use in a criminal trial. You know, it's kind of like the, you know, in a criminal trial, you have the beyond a reasonable doubt standard. In a civil trial, it's a different standard. It's uh, based on a preponderance of evidence, right? And so Carrie Lake was saying, this clear and convincing standard is what you would use in a criminal trial. But this is a civil matter. The election challenge is a civil matter. So your clear and convincing burden of proof is not the correct legal standard. However, unfortunately, the Arizona Supreme Court affirmed Judge Thompson's clear and convincing standard. And so when it came to the logic and accuracy testing and the McGregor report, the judge basically said it's irrelevant. It doesn't fit within the scope of that standard. Okay, and he basically said, you know, the burden of proof on Lake is very specific. I want you to show me X amount of votes were illegally counted or show me X amount of votes, uh, legal votes were not counted. You got to show me one of those two things. You know, voter disenfranchisement, 
the machines being intentionally rigged to, to spit out 19-inch ballots and reject ballots, all that's irrelevant because it doesn't fit within that scope. All right? And so um, he's not interested in any of that evidence. He won't allow it into his courtroom. And that's a key element to Kerry Lake's legal argument that the, the election was rigged. And if we can't make an argument based on that, well, it's 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 all comes down to the signature matching claim, right? Um, but on top of that, on top of that, this judge, he is again screwing Carrie Lake in regard to the signature verification claim because he has set a legal burden which is almost impossible for her to meet. Okay? Let me let me read you a portion of the judge, uh, the, the, the judge's decision, so you can hear for yourself how Carrie Lake basically, let me make an analogy. It's like what the judge is asking Carrie Lake to do is thread the eye of a needle with her eyes closed, her hands tied behind her back, and no thread. That's what he's asking her to do. So the cards are stacked against her. In summary, during the trial, in order for Carrie Lake to meet this burden of proof, she has to prove that the higher-level signature reviewers conducted no signature curing, uh, no no signature verification or curing whatsoever. None. Okay, not prove that uh, some bad ballots were allowed to go through. You know, which is her argument. This judge says that Carrie Lake must prove that there was no signature verification done at all at level two and level three. The signature verification has three levels. And for some reason, despite the fact that Carrie Lake never even argued that there was no signature uh, verification done at level two and level three, he's asking her to prove that there was no signature verification at level two and level three, which is impossible to do. What this means is that if Katie Hobbs and the defendants, Maricopa County, can prove that even one ballot was inspected at level two or level three, then the judge is going to rule in favor of the defendant and dismiss this case. That's the situation we're in. Um, the judge is asking Carrie Lake to prove something that she never claimed in the first place. Again, nowhere in Carrie Lake's complaint did she say that Maricopa County failed to follow any procedure whatsoever? She said there were violations, and there were violations of the law and the election procedure manual that occurred at all three levels. I believe at level one, her argument was that, you know, these people were only taking one to two seconds to review a signature, right? And they, they did not have the adequate time to review the signatures, right? At level two and level three, what she says is that there was lots of ballots being flagged at level one, and then they get sent to level two, and the level two were overriding the decision of the level one workers. They were passing bad ballots through at level two. Um, and at level three, I, I'm not sure where the argument is there, but basically she has whistleblowers who attested that they were expecting... Let's say you're okay. Let's say you're 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 coming into work, and you're hearing you're expecting that you're going to have thirty thousand ballots on your desk for curing at level three. 
but you only have 1,000 ballots on your desk. Well, as a level three worker, what that what that means to you is that, you know, 30,000 ballots were flagged at level one, but then 29,000 of those ballots were overrided at level two. So now you only have 1,000 ballots on your desk. And so Carrie Lake has these whistleblowers ready to go. But when the judge says you must prove that there was no signature verification conducted at level two or three at all, this is an impossible standard to meet. You know, that's something which Carrie Lake can't do. Not just because it's ridiculous, but also because she would have had to have her eyes on every single ballot at every step of the process in order to prove beyond a reasonable doubt or, you know, present clear and convincing evidence that there was no review. It's something she cannot do. You know, so so this is criminal. This judge himself is either completely incompetent or a criminal. And so therefore, I, I unfortunately have to say I wouldn't get your hopes too high here. I would say almost certainly that the judge is going to dismiss this case and that Carrie Lake is going to once again have to appeal this to the higher courts. And I would love, I would love so much to be proven wrong, to be proven wrong. And so that's why I said on uh, Telegram that I'm actually more optimistic about Abraham Hamaday's election challenge than I am for the election challenge of Kerry Lake. And it's simple, you know, because in Abraham Hamaday's case, even if he was dealing with this clear and convincing standard of evidence uh, situation that Kerry Lake is in, he still has the means to meet that burden because one, there's only a a margin of victory of 280 votes. Again, the closest election in Arizona history. And because, you know, basically it comes down to this. Can you show me X amount of illegal votes were counted or can you show me X amount of legal votes were not counted? Can you do either one of those two things? And if you can, then that would meet the burden. And in Abraham Hamaday's case, he can. All he needs is a review of the provisional ballots. And he can show that X amount of legal voters went to cast a ballot on election day and they were told that they were not registered to vote. However, they actually were legal registered voters who were disenfranchised and therefore their ballots should be counted. So that's something that he can actually accomplish, um, Abraham Hamaday. And so having said all that, you know, we all wanted the trifecta. We know the election was rigged against uh, Carrie Lake, Mark Fincham, Abraham Hamaday. We, we, and we went for the trifecta following the election. All three submit election challenges. In the case of Mark Fincham, it was a long shot because the margin of victory was over 100,000 votes. And even if you can show, like, boxes of ballots being lit on fire, it's hard to convince a judge to overturn an election with, with a margin so high. You know, because it's so um, it's such a monumental, historic decision. They don't want any parts of it. And the judge, Judge Thompson, presiding over Carrie Lake's case, even said 
kind of something along those lines when he dismissed her case. He said, look, this is an election with a margin of over 17,000 votes. For me to overturn this election would be unprecedented. Yes, there's been elections, at least one case where they overturned the election for a governor in Arizona history. But in this case, the election's not um, not nearly not not close. Right. It's 17000 votes. So the judge had a reluctance to rule in favor of Kerry Lake just based on the margin alone. Now, when you talk about Abraham Hamaday and this margin of only 280 votes, that goes out the window. This is a completely different story. Now, real quick, we're still waiting. I got the stream pulled up. Um, it has not started yet. I just went ahead and hit refresh there. If you guys could do me a favor and smash that rumble button, baby, you guys know how I feel about those rumble buttons. Click that like, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already, because again, we're going to we're gonna attempt to live stream all three days of Carrie Lake's trial. So, if you're just tuning in here for the first time, and you're not subscribed, well, you definitely, definitely want to subscribe. Now, um, it appears, you know, what we talked about with Carrie Lake's trial, it appears I'm not the only one that thinks this. Because... Carrie Lake, her legal team, actually challenged the judge who said that Carrie Lake must prove that there was no signature verification at level two and level three. They actually submit a motion um, challenging the judge. And, you know, the trial's tomorrow, but the judge still hasn't addressed it. So as it, as as we sit, it still stands. They're, they, they basically said, judge... You're completely misrepresenting our argument. We never said that there was no signature verification. So you're bringing us to a courtroom to prove something we can't prove. Okay, the stream is up. All right, thank you. Your Honor, Chris Keller and James Mitchell on behalf. Somebody let me know in the chat. You can hear everything okay. The volume's good. Yes, I did receive the uh, the Amakai brief too. Is anybody representing any of those parties today, or is that? I don't believe so, Your Honor. Well, as you can tell, just by uh, the the number of people that are uh, introduced themselves already, this is quite uh, uh, complicated and confusing. This is a motion for new trial filed by the plaintiffs. They have the right to argue that motion. I have responses by specific defendants, and I'm going to, uh, after I allow the uh, plaintiff to go first on the motion for new trial or argument, I will then have responses from each of the parties that filed a written response. I'll let them argue the case. If there's somebody that didn't file a written response that wants to argue at that point, I may uh, entertain that, but um, maybe not as well. We'll decide then, but I definitely will allow the people that have filed written responses to the motion uh, participate in that argument. And then when they're done, we'll, we'll hear again from the plaintiff uh, at that point. For those of you in the crowd, this is probably the type of thing that I'm not going to be ruling on today, if that's what you came here for. Uh, this is a, a hearing where the, the parties are going to be talking about uh, legal issues. There's, if, you, if you've been on the 
um, court website. There's literally hundreds of pages of exhibits that they're maybe uh, hundreds, maybe understating it uh, of exhibits that I have to be referred to and will be referred to and talk uh, and looking at that. I've uh, tried to review as much as possible, but I think the arguments will focus me on some of those as well. But I just want to make sure people are aware of that as we get started today. I will ask everybody not to talk or, or interrupt. If you need to get up and, and leave, please do, please do so as quietly as possible. Uh, I guess if that's where we're at, Mr. Zavallis, are you going to go first? Just, I am. All right. Thank you, sir. This is on behalf of the plaintiff. Go ahead, sir. Uh, I'm not going to go over the entire case for obvious reasons. It's briefly. Let me let me ask a question. Are people can people hear Mr. Zavallis? Can you get a mic closer to him? If that's, I just want to make sure anybody on Zoom can hear him as well. Is, could you hear him, uh, Ms. Daneman? No. no, Your Honor, we cannot hear very well. Yeah, the, the people here in the courtroom should be able to hear him. I'm hoping, but I was worried about. Uh, so get the microphone closer to Mr. Zavallis. I can't. I cannot hear him either, Your Honor. Thank you. I guess I'm going to remind everybody we have a court reporter, so if you speak, uh, make sure I hear your name. That was Mr. Morgan. Can you get up closer? Like that. If that works, does that work, Your Honor? That works better, yes. Do the other participants on video, can they hear me? Yes, thank you. All right. And that's the best we can do anyway, so go ahead, Mr. Zavalos. Well, thank you, Your Honor. And again, I, as I was mentioning, uh, I'm not going to argue the, the entire case at all. I'm going to be very brief. It's just a sketch of an outline of where we're going and some comments and things for the court to be aware of. Uh, Ms. Jennifer Wright will really give the sum and substance of the new evidence and the information we have that leads us to believe that not only the newly discovered evidence, but the entire situation that took place is such that this court has a basis in fact and a basis in law to get it right and to grant the motion for a new trial. Uh, we're here because <clears throat> one of the contestants, Abraham, wants a recount of certain matters, limited in scope. It's not to ask for the entire state to have a new election. And I would only pause it by giving just a few comments before I get started about how significant the event is here today, because it was our, one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, who opined, in, as he did on many things he wrote, that when talking about voting, he made this comment. We do not have a government by the majority. We have a government by the majority who vote. And in my younger years, I had the privilege of seeing that plaque at the Justice Department where I was a, an attorney there in a special litigation unit that handled both criminal and civil matters and also handled voting rights litigation. And one of a late colleague of mine, but many, many years ago, under that beautiful plaque of Thomas Jefferson in the voting rights section, had this, we do not have government by the majority. We have government by the majority who vote and those whose lawful votes are counted. And that's going to have any amens during the hearing. It's not appropriate. doesn't help. If you can't be quiet, please leave. Thank you, Mr. Go ahead. And, and, and that is consistent with even our only our court in Griffin versus Bazaar 
when it said we need the need the doors open to hearings for hearings to hear challenges. I think all of our courts understand that, and it's in part what our founding fathers gave us, and it's in part what people have fought for in this country over the last two centuries and died for. So this is a solemn occasion, and I I, I tip my hat to the lawyers on both sides because what we do here matters. It's solemn, and it's just one step from a temple as far as we are concerned. <clears throat> on December 23rd, 2022, the court presided over a contest where the only time Mr. Hamaday had was limited to viewing essentially sample ballots in Maricopa County. <clears throat> the upside, upshot of that challenge uh, was not successful. Uh, there were some issues, and I'll let my colleague talk about what those issues were about, but they didn't rise, at least at that stage, to the level of new evidence, to the level this court needs because effectively, we learned that Ms. Hobbs came to this court through her counsel and basically argued that Mr. Hamaday did not have any evidence. No evidence. Because there's no evidence, please place the, the winner in the hands of the current person who is sitting, Ms. Mays, as Attorney General. Unknown to this court, and this is only one small aspect because the case isn't about fraud. It's about new evidence and it's about facts. But it's important that I bring this up and I believe Ms. Wright's going to bring it up because it matters. Because inferences are drawn. Inferences are drawn in civil cases and criminal cases when public officials either act with reckless disregard for the facts that, are, that matter or actually suppress them. And in this case, not that the suppression that took place, whether willful or not, would necessarily have changed the outcome. And this is just a very small portion of what we're going to deal with today. But it deprived the court and deprived everyone else of asking questions. And we believe the current governor, when she was acting in a prior capacity, knew that there were a number of votes, approximately 63 votes concealed from Pinal County, And when she asked for the new person to hold the office of attorney general, either she or others in her capacity or representing her knew or should have known, or she engaged in blind ignorance of the fact that there was, in fact, valid votes that would have at least caused this court, perhaps, or counsel to give some thought. What is that about? And does it materially matter? That is something that my colleague will talk a little bit more about. But I will tell you, in the 43 years of litigation that I've been involved in, in the jurisdictions which I've practiced in, too many in Provoc Vici, that when evidence or information is not revealed, it does violence to the interest of justice. It does violence to the truth function of a court and of parties. And it is something at the very end I want to talk to this court about because there is an instruction in this statement before the Ninth Circuit about deliberate ignorance and what that means and whether a court can draw inferences from that in which we contend it certainly can because it was highly inappropriate that it took place. 
that will be a matter my colleague will talk about. And we won't dwell too much more on it than that. But it did involve undervotes, and they matter. What we do have, and what does, in fact, specifically and absolutely require is what new evidence do you have that may likely lead or believe, this court to believe, that our client, Mr. Hamaday, actually won the election. We believe the evidence we have today, and I'm just going to briefly go through it, and I want the court to understand the perspective, because another court, no matter what's going to review this. Um, but I want the court to understand that when it deals with evidence before it, when we come before this court for a new trial, and we were handicapped at the beginning stage by either deliberate or inappropriate behavior or simply mistaken behavior, perhaps, that that deprived us of being able to do our due diligence and perhaps giving the court an opportunity to give us a little more time. Had I been here, I would have asked the judge, Your Honor, at this time we need to have this hearing to get a little time to examine a little bit more about this rather than asking you, Your Honor, to sit there and make a, a deliberate judgment. I wasn't here. I think that should have happened. But it matters now because it gives this court an, an inference about circumstantial evidence and whether we can draw inferences as courts do every day in criminal cases. When somebody takes the Fifth Amendment, an inference is drawn in a deposition or a criminal case. When somebody withholds evidence, and it's up to the court to decide whether it was just oblivious mistake or whether there was blind ignorance, if not willful, deliberate effort, it's up to the court to decide that and to give it whatever weight it decides. It thinks it's appropriate, if any. But we did discover undercounts, and we're going to go into a little detail about that because you need a record before you to, to get your hands around this case, Your Honor, and to get it right one way or the other. We had a recount total of more than 76,339 votes recorded as undervotes in the Attorney General's contest. That's a significant amount of votes. And they're significant, but they have to be measured against what? There were approximately 2,000 votes so far, ballots inspected. 14 votes not tabulated for the AG's race, or 0.61, were misread. If misread is consistent statewide, and we don't know, but it may have been. There are 466 or more uncounted votes in the AG race, which we believe would have gone to Mr. Hamaday, that exceeds the 280-vote margin between the vote findings this past November. These were limited to Maricopa. And Maricopa is not the only jurisdiction that we need to look at. As my colleague will tell you, we need to do a sample and find out what actually happened. Those are a lot of votes. They're a small percentage, but in a case where 280-some votes are the difference, that matters. And it matters because our votes, as Jefferson told us, matter. They need to be counted. And forgive me for digressing a minute, but it was my old office before I became a U.S. attorney many years ago as a federal prosecutor in Houston, in Washington, where men and women that were a little older than me 
at the time were fighting not just for the right to vote, but the right for voters who did vote and their votes counted. And uh, sadly, that some of that was in the South. So this is important. And we have a lot of undervotes that matter that could absolutely, and we believe turn the election in favor of our client. We believe it's reasonably likely that that is what happened. But this court can't make that finding. It can only draw an inference to see whether we met that threshold for the court to say, it's very possible, if not likely, this man won. But I can't make that decision until I allow a new hearing and I attest what I do as a judge, the evidence, by the rules of evidence under Arizona law, and by my understanding and my weight as a judge of this. And there's another area called provisional ballots. <clears throat> we believe the provisional ballots that were lost and never counted likely would have turned in favor of Mr. Hamaday, and that alone would have turned the election in favor of our client. And we don't come today with hyperbole or speculation, because that isn't the stuff that gives this court grounds to grant the motions. We come with some reasonably solid evidence, and we need a heck of a lot more for this judge and this court to get its hands around and make that final decision. <clears throat> what happened with provisional ballots? Ms. Wright will tell you, but there a lot of them dealt with new voters. You had in Maricopa County a number of votes rejected from people who had signed and had, and not just Maricopa County, other jurisdictions that had had voted in 2018, 2020, and many in 2022, and their votes were rejected. Well. In more detail, and I think it's important for the court to get its arms around this, because this is a case where there's a mechanical mistake, errors by our state, because our state isn't perfect. No state is, not even Florida or Texas, but it's growing. And what happened in part was we had ballots that weren't counted, weren't, that were signed, people who had moved to different jurisdictions, People who had one property and another property, and they voted and tried to vote. And, in fact, we found that there were substantial votes that were not counted. And the percentages of those votes are important for the court to hear today. Um, the system and the, and the problems dealing with Service Arizona, Arizona Voter Information Database, are things that this court ought to consider. I think if I said anything further, I would be going into the merits and the sum and substance of what Ms. Jennifer Wright is going to talk to you about. But I would like to be able, with this court's indulgence and permission, a few moments at the very end, if it becomes necessary, to wrap it up. So about in response? Yes. Yeah. You, you guys will have a chance to respond. I would now turn it over to my colleague. All right. Ms. Wright. All right. Go ahead, Ms. Wright. Thank you. Do you want this? Yeah, I do. Okay. Can we put the quad views? Can you guys see the attorneys in the courtroom from there? Or just see me? I think. Let's do this. No, Your Honor, we cannot. This will, this will be better. There you are. Okay. All right. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, this afternoon, I'm going to address the legal standards for granting a motion for new trial and the newly discovered evidence. 
I'm going to start first with the newly discovered evidence and why we believe that this evidence will prove that Abe Hominay and not Chris Mays received the most votes for attorney general and as required by Arizona's constitution should be declared elected as Arizona's attorney general. After I've discussed the new evidence, I'm going to discuss the relevant legal standards and case law that supports our motion. Now, I know that contestee in this case and defendants have tried to confuse these issues, but we're here today for a few simple reasons. First, on December 23rd, your honor presided over Abe Hominay's election contest. The evidence presented at trial was virtually solely limited to reviewing the sample of ballots inspected in Maricopa County. If you recall, ballots were, that were recorded as having no vote in the attorney general's race were reviewed. And Maricopa County Elections Director Scott Jarrett testified over and over again that he did not know why certain votes were not counted and instead recorded as undervotes. And as a refresher, an undervote uh, means that no vote was recorded as cast for either candidate for attorney general. At trial, all parties agreed that there were marks on ballots that evidenced the intent of the voter um, to have cast a ballot vote in the attorney general's race. And based on the findings, Abe Hominay, through co-counsel Tim Lasota, um, renewed his request for an expanded review of ballots and specifically renewed his motion for expedited discovery. And if you remember, on December 22nd, the day before trial, the issue of ballot inspection was addressed in an emergency hearing. Both times, Mr. Lasota asked for more time to expect more ballots that were recorded as undervotes. But surprisingly, at the December 23rd evidentiary hearing, then Secretary Hobbs, who should be a neutral, nominal party to an election contest. In fact, Your Honor, the election contest statutes do not even require the secretary to be a party to the case. Um, I think that over time that the government bodies um, that have control over evidence in election-related cases have been made parties solely for the purpose of following the orders of the sport, but I digress. Then Secretary Hobbs, through her counsel, argued at the hearing that Mr. Hamadi, uh, quote, had no evidence to support his claims and asked for, quote, prompt dismissal of this case and asked this, coach, uh, the, asked this court to confirm, quote, Attorney General elect Mays as Attorney General. However, at that very moment, Hobbs had evidence from Pinal County that at least 63 votes that were originally recorded as undervotes in the attorney general race had been determined to be valid votes that were eventually added to the canvas in the recount. Hobbs and her counsel knew at that moment that evidence, the evidence she said Mr. Hamaday didn't have, that issues raised at trial regarding machine tabulators misreading valid votes as undervotes was not speculative and not limited to just Maricopa County. She was told this in a report that was provided to her on December 21st. And in fact, recent media reports suggest that Hobbs may have even known as, e as early as December 7th, several days before this contest was even filed. Hobbs and her successor had argued that Maricopa County Superior Court ordered her not to disclose that information, but that's not true. As we've argued in our briefs, the recount order only prevented counties from discussing the recount results or vote totals. The secretary was under no order preventing her from informing this court and Mr. Hamaday that there may be an issue with undervotes that suggested further inspection of ballots might be warranted. She knowingly withheld this information. Instead, her counsel argued that Mr. Hamaday had, again, quote, no evidence. 
and urge this court to confirm Mays. Frankly, Your Honor, I find it a bit questionable that a government agent would take a position in support of or in opposition to a candidate in an election contest. But again, I digress. So reason number one for the new trial, then Secretary Hobbs intentionally withheld information only known to her that confirmed that precise issue at trial was not speculative, but was in fact a source of significant vote swing in Pinal County. And Your Honor, I think if then Secretary Hobbs had been forthright, you may have granted Mr. Hamaday's request to inspect more ballots before this court made a final determination in this issue of great significance to the people of Arizona, who actually received the most votes. Arizona's constitution demands that the person with the most votes be declared elected. We are here today to give that constitutional provision meaning and ensure the will of the voters of Arizona is achieved. Now, talk a few minutes about what the evidence shows about undervotes statewide. But first, let's discuss the second reason we're here today. And why was this resolved in December like it should have been? In Mr. Hamaday's motion for expedited discovery, he specifically requested the list of persons who cast a provisional ballot that was not tabulated. This request was reasonably calculated to narrow the scope of provisional ballots that were available for inspection under 16-677. Simultaneous with this discovery request, a public records request was made. Although this court did deny the request for expedited discovery, information requested was a public record that was readily accessible electronically through the computers or county's computer systems in a report no later than the date of the, of the campus. But this information was not obtainable by Mr. Hamaday through any other means other than making a request to this court and through public records laws. Mr. Hamaday exercised due diligence to obtain those documents, but Maricopa failed to provide them until after trial. In fact, the request was fulfilled on Saturday, December 31st, eight days after trial. And whatever the reason, and I I honestly know that the county had simultaneous litigation and a large number of public records requests to process at that time, but regardless, Maricopa did not provide those records until after trial, and Mr. Hamaday could not have obtained those records through any other means. Mr. Hominay exercised due diligence, and despite his best efforts, those records were not provided by the sole possessor of that information until after trial. And we are here today for the simple fact that then-Secretary Hobbs secreted information that confirmed tabulators were recording discernible votes in the Attorney General's race as undervotes, information that may have led this court to expand the ballot inspection. Further, we are here because Maricopa did not provide provisional ballot information until after trial. Information that had it been timely provided, we would have been able to address those problems we found at trial. Based on what we now know, information Mr. Hamaday could not have known at the last trial despite his due diligence, this court would have ruled differently and the evidence would have been proven Mr. Hamaday received the most votes and is the democratically and constitutionally elected Attorney General. Now let's discuss what the newly discovered evidence shows. I'm going to have a couple of demonstratives. I have them available to the court if we wanted to do them. I do have them on a poster. These are just, um, these are evidence. These are just um, visual aids. Just to give you, and some of the, most of the stuff is already in our pleadings. So this isn't new information. I will say the one part about this is this is the statewide undervote. We, in our pleadings, we had most of the counties 
based off of the official reports of undervotes. So what we now have is we went through and added in the counties and we assumed what their undervotes probably were for some of them based off of um, the number of total votes passed in that election versus total votes cast in the attorney general's race. Your Honor, Your Honor, we cannot see that demonstrative. We haven't been provided it. We object to the court considering it. It's not evident. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to let them argue their case. This is a motion for new, new trial. And obviously if we could get these documents to these uh, parties through email or something, that would be beneficial. So if you get copies of these documents to everybody that's uh, requesting them, this is just an exhibit they're making. uh, And this is a motion for new trial. I want you to see it. uh, And you have a right to see it, but it's not being admitted as evidence. So go ahead. It's not, no. And your honor, uh, most of this is already in our replies to our motion for a new trial in, in support of our motion for a new trial. We have this chart within it. We've just expanded it to include counties that we did that we did not report their official undervote and we're making Your Honor, for the for the record, I'm sorry, I couldn't hit you. The Secretary of State joins in Ms. Danneman's objection. Thanks. No, I'm, I'm, I'm taking everybody's objection to this document. I'm uh, allowing her to argue it in this motion, oral argument for motion for new trial. Right. And you, uh, hopefully, Mr. Morgan, you among everyone else are getting copies of this as we speak. Uh, I see. I see one of the attorneys doing it on his phone. I don't know how they do it on your phone, but <laughs> that's what's happening. All right. So hopefully, you'll get that uh, relatively soon. But again, it's just it's in the it's, uh, some of the stuff, and I, I remember seeing these numbers. Some of the stuff I've already read, you'll, you'll be familiar with, and you'll get a copy of it. So go ahead, Ms. Wright. All right. So first, regarding the undervotes, um, based off of the official canvases of each county, uh, and this is based off of um, recount totals in this last column, um, there are upwards to 76,339 votes recorded as undervotes in the Attorney General's race statewide. Evidence from the trial suggested that of the 2,000 or so ballots inspected, 14 votes, um, ha- or 14 had votes that were not tabulated in the Attorney General's race. That equates, and I put this, that's in our pleadings, about a 0.61% misread rate. Now, assuming that same misread rate is consistent statewide, we believe that there may be 466 or more uncounted votes in the Attorney General's race, and that well exceeds the now 280 vote margin that separates Ms. Mays and Mr. Hominick. Based off the newly discovered information that undervotes impacted more than just Maricopa County and to such a degree that it would likely change the outcome of the election, Mr. Hamaday should be afforded the opportunity to inspect all 76,000 undervoted ballots, which will be well within his rights under 16-677, which states that either party may have the ballots inspected. Now, contrary to Contestee's mischaracterization, Mr. Hamaday does not request to review more than 2.5 million ballots, rather just the ballots that have been recorded as an undervote in the attorney general's race. And I assure you, Your Honor, that as we get closer to issuing those orders, we can show that it's a matter of public record that ESNS, Dominion, and Unison Tabulators, which are the three systems authorized for use in Arizona, according to the Secretary of State's website, all take electronic images of each ballot. And based off of the cast vote record, CDR, which was discussed in great detail during the emergency hearing on December 22nd, the electronic images can actually be filtered to show just ballots with undervotes in the attorney general's race. 
So we're only going to be asking to review a subset of ballots that should be able to be sorted, obtained, and reviewed, mostly electronically. For undervotes, we're not going to be able to predict how the vote margin will change. But as Mr. Hamaday has asserted, every vote should count. This is particularly true when votes are not being recorded because the machines cannot accurately interpret voter intent. Critically, we are not asking this court to predict or apportion votes on any statistical theories. Rather, we are asking the court to count and determine with mathematical certainty the number of votes passed in the attorney general's race based on reviewing not just clear and convincing evidence, but the best evidence, the ballots themselves. Second, provisional ballots. Here we have a very good sense of how these ballots will shake out. And the evidence we have now suggests that once certain provisional ballots are counted, the provisional ballots alone will prove that Abe Hominay received the most votes for attorney general and is the democratically and constitutionally elected attorney general for the state of Arizona. Critically, Your Honor, if granted a new trial, the evidence that Abe Hominay won again, will be the ballots themselves. I'm going to get into some data here that represents the evidence we have found that suggests once certain provisional ballots are counted, the outcome of this case and the results of the Attorney General's race will be that Abe Hominay is Arizona's Attorney General. But ultimately, this case does not and will not rely on adding or subtracting um, irradical or speculative votes. Rather, this case will count the undervotes and will count the erroneously rejected provisional ballots, giving us a sum certain of who actually received the most votes for Attorney General. And at the conclusion of the new trial, the outcome of the Attorney General's race will be known with mathematical certainty. Now, regarding the data related to erroneously rejected provisional ballots, let's dig into that a bit. First, after our review of the rejected provisional ballots from Maricopa County, we almost immediately found that hundreds of Maricopa County voters had a very unusual profile. Now, ordinarily, provisional ballots are cast by first-time Arizona voters. They're either too new to the state or, or due to age, this is the first time they've ever voted. These voters don't know that you have to register almost a month before the election, and they show up to vote on election day and are ineligible. What we found in the list of rejected provisional ballots data was that hundreds of the thousands of rejected votes were cast by people with significant voting history, people who voted in 2018, 2020, and even some of them voted in the 2022 primary. But nonetheless, the provisional ballot was rejected and not, for instance, for having already cast an early ballot or failing to present ID or even forgetting to sign the provisional ballot, but for not being registered to vote at all in Maricopa, which seemed odd. Why would a voter show up on election day to cast a ballot? A voter who has successively voted, some as recently as August of 22, at a voting location in Maricopa, where they've always voted, and have their provisional ballot be rejected for not being registered to vote in Maricopa. It just, it just didn't make sense. After looking at the other counties, we found more similarly situated voters. Voters who had recent active voting histories that had rejected provisional ballots. In fact, so far, we've identified about 1,100 voters that fit this profile. More than I should say. Um, and after interviewing hundreds of those voters, we found that many are voters who have connections to properties outside of their home county and due to no fault of their own, 
but instead changes to statewide computer systems, their registration was moved from their county of residence to the county where they have some connection without the voters' express knowledge, consent, or intent in a way that lacks the requisite procedural due process requirements necessitated before depriving someone of their sacred right to vote. At trial, we can get into the specific details of how, when, and why we think these voter registrations were computer systematically removed. Um, But for the purposes of this motion, I think it suffice to say it appears that more than 1,100 election day provisional voters were, we believe, wrongfully disenfranchised. This right here, we have hundreds of declarations we've obtained from voters. Hundreds. These are all people that tried to vote on election day and had their ballot rejected. They were told they were not registered to vote. Turns out, With many of these declarations, we have their voting record and history, and we can see when and how it was changed, and it was not by their own intent. And we know their intent because they didn't even show up to vote in the secondary county that that was assigned to them. So if they had intended to move to, say, Navajo County, then why did they show up to vote in Maricopa? Hundreds. Instead, they cast one vote. There's no record of them casting more than one vote. One vote in their home county that was ultimately rejected and is currently waiting to be counted. Your Honor, you have the power to order those votes to be counted. What we know is that statewide, Election Day votes overwhelmingly were for Abe Hamaday. Assuming, and this is another demonstrative, I think it's already been emailed now. I should have done. I'm sorry. That's right. This is just a demonstrative. May I approach the vote, Your Honor? Sure. What we know is that um, statewide election day votes overwhelming were for aid, assuming that the 1,100 voters that have rejected provisional votes, and those are election day voters, voted consistently with the statewide canvas. Accommodate received 69.21% of election day votes, and Chris Mays received 28.72%. You can see 2% is other. That would suggest that of those 1,100 uh, provisional voters, 760 of one of them would be provisional ballots for a hominin, and 316 would be provisional ballots for mates. On that fact alone, if we subtract hominin's total from mates total, we get a net increase of 445 hominin votes. Subtract that net increase from the current vote margin of 280 votes. This data suggests that Mr. Hominin on the provisional Issue alone should prevail over Ms. Hayes by 100, uh, Ms. Mays, excuse me, by 165 votes, making Abe Comedy the democratically and constitutionally elected attorney general for the state of Arizona. At this point, we have evidence that the government systems and procedures failed to meet the constitutional procedural due process requirements necessary to prevent erroneous disenfranchisement. And to be clear, we are not alleging that these voters had their voter registrations intentionally canceled or moved to some sort of nefarious spot. Instead, we believe that good intentive changes were made to both Service Arizona and the Arizona Voter Information Database that unintentionally and tragically caused the disenfranchisement of hundreds of Arizona voters. We also have evidence 
um, that other issues such as improper instructions at precinct-based voting locations caused voters to be disenfranchised. And I believe we have a declarant in our materials that we provided, Your Honor, in our reply um, of some voters in Mojave that received some erroneous precinct-based instructions. Um, and just to be clear, the election contest statutes do not require that we allege fraud or intentional misconduct. Instead, we assert, by reason of erroneous vote counts, Ms. Mays, who was declared elected, did not, in fact, receive the highest number of votes for office of attorney general. Now, when we get into the legal standard and relevant case law, Mr. Hamaday timely filed for a new trial under the Arizona Rules of Civil Procedure Rule 59 including, by reason of the irregularities of proceedings, errors of law, and newly discovered material. Specifically, Rule 59 provides that a new trial may be granted when there is newly discovered material evidence that could, have, could not have been discovered and produced at trial with reasonable diligence, which materially affected, in this case, the plaintiff's rights. So, frankly, I spent almost the last 20 minutes discussing what material was discovered, how it will change the outcome and detailed why it could not have been produced at trial, despite plaintiff's reasonable diligence. In fact, the evidence itself was under lock and key of, by the government bodies. Frankly, Your Honor, this trial should be granted for no other reason than to encourage government bodies to be forthright with information and quick and be quick to provide the requested materials. But again, I digress. Because defendants are anxious to prevent a new trial, they have crafted some clever legal arguments that fail under existing precedent. Arizona's court, highest court, has time and again found that the rules of civil procedure apply to election contests. In fact, Arizona's constitution gives the judiciary the sole authority to dictate court procedures. And the legislature is without authority to abrogate the constitutional authority of the judiciary. And I dare say, you don't want to give the legislature any ideas. I'm sure they would likely be more than happy to meddle with the rules of civil procedure in other contexts to advance other important policy objectives. But this court may not make any presumptions about the role of the rules of civil procedure because we can look to Griffin v. Buzzard. That granted a motion to dismiss despite the specific statutory requirement that the court shall continue in session to hear and determine all issues arising in contested elections. More recently, a Maricopa court held an election contest arising out of the 2022 Secretary of State race that the rules of procedure apply in all civil actions and proceedings in the Superior Court. And the contest is such a proceeding. And the Arizona Supreme Court just remanded an issue back to Maricopa County Superior Court in a contest arising out of the 2022 governor's race which, as of last night, is headed for trial tomorrow. In fact, in yesterday's order, um, which we we can provide a notice of supplemental authority for, um, the Maricopa County Superior Court, in declining the merits... uh, Oh, oh, sorry, let me go back. The the court... The Maricopa County Court, in declining on the merits, the plaintiff's rule succeed motion for relief for judgment. The court noted that to the extent that the civil rules can apply without contradiction to an election challenge, they do apply, adding that includes Rule 60, and suggested, maybe foolishly, given the constitutional authority of the Supreme Court, that the legislature could have abrogated or accelerated the rules of an election challenge to preclude Rule 60, or here, Rule 59, and they, if they had so desired. In regards to the time elements of election contest statutes, 
Arizona's highest court has already determined in Bruce v. Fitzgerald that the time elements of the election contest statutes are necessary, wait, are mandatory and jurisdictional as it relates to when the contestant must be filed, when the contest must be filed, but it's directory and really an expression of policy preferences and guidance to the court as to when the court must hold the trials. And I'd also note again, it says in the, the statutes that the court shall hear all the issues and it doesn't have a deadline as to how long that might take. It's an open-ended period. It just says that once you make a ruling, you have five days to, to uh, order it and, and deal with the whatever election certificates if election issues might arise. In regard to mootness and other issues raised by defendants, although defendants understandably want to wish away Hunt v. Campbell, it is the preeminent case regarding election contests. In one of the first gubernatorial elections after Arizona became a state, the incumbent governor, Mr. Hunt, filed an election contest that ensued for 13 months. And as a side, this statehood era case highlights that the legitimacy of elections has been questioned time and again, frankly, what is old is new again. And that's why Arizona statutorily provided for election contests to allow the judicial process to examine, question, and correct elections, especially ones that are so very close and where the questions linger about the legitimacy of the results. The judicial process is key to restoring waiting confidence in election administration. Going back to Hunt v. Campbell, after scrupulous review of the ballots and 13 months of litigation, Arizona's highest court declared elected Mr. Hunt. And Mr. Campbell, who had been sitting in the governor's office for an entire year, had his certificate of election declared void and of no effect and was hereby canceled and annulled. Fun fact, Arizona's gubernatorial term was just two years at that time. Um, so in 1918, right after he won his uh, election contest, Mr. Hunt chose actually not to run for re-election. So he was going right into an election cycle. Mr. Campbell, who had just lost the election contest, ran again um, and beat out a Mr. Coulter by 0.61% of the vote. Campbell served two terms before facing off again to Mr. Hunt in 1922. Um, and then at that point, Campbell lost in a landslide. From the days of Nero... To the pages of the New York Times, politics has always been regarded as somewhat of a blood sport, with people wanting power or wanting to remain at power at virtually any cost. And elections have been questioned since the dawn of time and will continue to be questioned. The 1916 and 1917 Arizona Supreme Court respected the judicial process to resolve, I quote, the most important question affecting the purity of the elections and the legally expressed will of the voters. More than 40 years later, in Griffin v. Buzzard, the Supreme Court made clear Arizona courts must be alert to preserving the purity of elections and its doors must not be closed to hearing charges. And while that case had allegations of fraud, the sentiment remains the same when erroneous government processes have disenfranchised what appears to be more than a thousand 
Millions of people every day are reaping the health benefits of using cannabis oil, also known as CBD. This new product derived from hemp has fascinated doctors and scientists around the world for its powerful effects on the human body. If you are in need of alternative methods for health empowerment, please visit www.naturalhempoil.com. That's www.naturalhempoil.com. CBD is now legal in over 40 states, and our products are non-psychoactive and contain less than 0.3% THC levels. We also offer products for household pets. NaturalHempOil.com does not claim to treat cancer, PTSD, epilepsy, anxiety, insomnia, joint pain, eczema, or any chronic condition that you may have been diagnosed with. Please consult with a doctor before you take CBD. Results may vary, so give our natural CBD a try at www.NaturalHempOil.com. That's www.NaturalHempOil.com. When it comes to stubborn belly fat, we're all searching for a miracle pill which may never exist. But believe it or not, I may have found the next best thing. It's called Belly Trim, and it's more effective at targeting belly fat, enhancing metabolism, and promoting a toned midsection better than most weight management products I've seen typically found on store shelves. Tens of thousands of five-star reviewers can't be wrong. Simply place your order now to get 51% off along with many other free bonuses before they sell out by going to www.trimwithus.com. That's www.trimwithus.com. www.trimwithus.com. Order now. Energy bills are rising at a historic rate, and there's no end in sight. That's why tens of thousands are using this amazing little device from SavePowerBills.com. It's a small but smart gadget that stabilizes electrical currents, reduces dirty electricity, and helps protect your electronics. Just plug it into your home's wall outlet to help lower energy consumption and ultimately help reduce your power bills every month. Order now to get 65% off plus many free bonuses before they sell out by going to SavePowerBills.com. That's SavePowerBills.com. Order now. Energy bills are rising at a historic rate, and there's no end in sight. That's why tens of thousands are using this amazing little device from SavePowerBills.com. It's a small but smart gadget that stabilizes electrical currents, reduces dirty electricity, and helps protect your electronics. Just plug it into your home's wall outlet to help lower energy consumption and ultimately help reduce your power bills every month. Order now to get 65% off plus many free bonuses before they sell out by going to SavePowerBills.com. That's SavePowerBills.com. Order now. Violent crime across the U.S. has skyrocketed. Between mass shootings, homicides, kidnappings, burglaries, and carjacking, it's never been more vital to learn how to protect yourself. This is why tens of thousands are choosing the Fighter Flare Flashlight. The Fighter Flare Flashlight includes an ultra-bright 800-lumen light, powerful strobe lighting modes for self-defense, a glass-breaking hammer, a built-in power bank, solar-powered recharging, rope and wire cutter, siren, high and low LED lighting mode, and much more. Simply place your order now to get 66% off along with many other free bonuses before they sell out by going to www.fighterflare.com. Order now at www.fighterflare.com fighterflare.com voters and tabulators apparently failed to read hundreds of votes this court too should ensure the outcome of the attorney general's race is in fact the legally expressed will of the voter and arizona's constitution demands it although the election was six months ago i'd note the high court took 13 months to fully litigate and the reyes court Another successful election contest, and that one from 1997, was not fully resolved until the Arizona Supreme Court declined review in March of 1998, full 16 months after the election. We are not outside the norms of these delicate, complicated, important proceedings. And many of the courts, even one um, 
raised the mootness issue because it was a primary election. And uh, uh, Your Honor, Bond sitting down, I get the court case name, which one it precisely was. But it was a primary election in which the issue had already been resolved, and the court continued after the general election to hear the contest because it is important to get it right. Arizona's judicial system strives to get it right. Your Honor, I humbly urge this court to grant our motion for a new trial to ensure in a race separated by only 280 votes out of more than 2.5 million votes passed that the legally expressed will of the voters is achieved and the democratically and constitutionally elected attorney general is in fact declared elected. Your Honor, simply put, we're asking you to give us an opportunity to prove to you that you should count the discarded votes. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wright. Ms. Danneman, you're going to go first. I see you standing. You have to unmute. There you go. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Plaintiffs just spent most of their argument urging this court to consider various so-called facts, most of which are just unsworn speculation and opinions and testimony of their counsel, not actual evidence. And plaintiffs seek their extraordinary relief under the guise of a new trial motion. But they ignore the fact that election contests are limited statutory proceedings designed to resolve cases on short timelines in recognition of the strong public interest in the finality of elections. To allow a new trial motion more than six months after an election and nearly five months after a full trial would directly conflict with the contest statutes. But even if such a motion were allowed, plaintiffs fall far short of the proof necessary for such an extraordinary remedy. As plaintiffs readily admit, as we stand here today, more than five months after the trial, they still are not in possession of actual evidence that would change the results. Instead, their argument before this court boils down to the election was close. If you let us keep looking, we might find something. But as they said in their papers, quote, a more complete ballot inspection is necessary to confirm. And it's consistent with what they've asked for today, Your Honor. They've asked for, quote, a little more time. To sum up, they had no proof when they filed their contest. They had no no proof for their claims at trial when plaintiffs admitted stunningly that they did not have enough evidence to, quote, sustain this particular contest. They have no proof now. What What this motion really boils down to is not a request for a new trial, but a request for a post trial, quote, meticulous review of many thousands of ballots, quote, without the rush conditions of a contest to, quote, ensure the accuracy of the election. Plaintiffs admitted that again during their argument before this court. Plaintiffs want their own recount, and they've asked for this court for that expressly today. This relief is unprecedented. It would also conflict with the contest statutes, the recount statutes, and Supreme Court precedent. And I know Your Honor has received a lot of written material in this case, and I I don't want to repeat um, that. But I would like to briefly highlight for the court, especially in light of the argument today, first, why this motion is procedurally inappropriate. Second, why it's meritless. And third, some additional reasons why the relief they're seeking is prohibited. So first, statutes for expedited election contests do not permit new trials. As this court well knows, election contests are limited and must be conducted in strict conformity with the contest statutes. They have strict timelines. Again, a contest must be brought within five days after the campus. The hearing must be held not later than 10 days thereafter. 
Then the court must, quote, file its finding within five days and then, quote, immediately thereafter pronounce judgment. To allow a new trial now would conflict with, at a minimum, the deadline for setting a hearing, the requirement that findings be entered within five days, and that judgment be entered immediately. Arizona courts have not confronted the exact question of whether a new trial motion is permitted in an election contest, but other jurisdictions have and found that such motions are prohibited, like Nebraska and California. And the Supreme Court has specifically rejected attempts to apply rules of procedure that are inconsistent with the contest statutes, like Rule 59 and Sierra. For instance, in Grounds v. Law, the court recognized that you couldn't amend your contest statement after the deadline for filing. Simply put, to grant a new trial would conflict with numerous statutory provisions by allowing plaintiffs, in essence, to start from the beginning of the contest. Before the court today, plaintiffs seem to suggest to the court that we believe that the rules of civil procedure do not apply in election contests. We've never said that. Of course, certain civil procedure rules apply in election contests, but not Rule 59 because it directly conflicts with the contest statutes. And plaintiffs put too much weight in their papers and before the court today on Hunt v. Campbell. When Hunt was decided, there were no expedited timelines for elections. As set forth in our papers, the only deadlines were for initiating the contest and answering the contest. And the statute provided that the court had discretion to set and, quote, continue the time of the hearing. In contrast, today, as this court knows very well, statutes here set short deadlines for initiating a contest, hearing a contest, and deciding a contest. But even if the court could consider the motion, plaintiff's claims fail on the merits. And I think it's worth pausing here. The court heard a lot of testimony by counsel today. But when you look at the actual, quote, facts, and then you look at the rules, plaintiff's claims fail. And in their motions, they nowhere engage in any analysis as to why, based on specific provision of the rules applied to specific facts, they're entitled to a new trial, which is an extraordinary remedy. Between their motion and reply, they cannot even consistently identify the claimed grounds for a new trial. This should be the end. But I'd like to briefly address in turn each of plaintiffs' claimed grounds under Rule 59. They claim irregularities in the proceedings, they claim errors of law, and they identify, quote, newly discovered evidence. First, irregularities. Plaintiffs don't actually identify any error that occurred in the original trial, let alone one that affected its outcome. Again, plaintiffs finished their case in chief in under 20 minutes, and plaintiffs' counsel announced on the record that the evidence they had was, quote, not enough to sustain the contest. Second, plaintiffs point to errors of law by this court. Though their motion doesn't identify what specific legal errors they're talking about, the reply does. These arguments, of course, are waived. They're difficult to follow, but they're meritless nonetheless. In reply, plaintiffs argue three things. First, the court abused its discretion by denying plaintiffs' request to postpone the hearing. The court followed the law in setting the hearing by the plain terms of 16676. The court could not have extended the hearing beyond what it did. But in any event, plaintiffs don't even claim an error of law by the court. They claim that the court, quote, abused its discretion. Even if that were true, that's not grounds for a new trial. Next, they try to argue that this court erred by holding that 
Provisional ballots are not ballots contemplated under the law. The court never made such a ruling and never denied any request to look at provisional ballots themselves. Finally, the reply makes a vague reference to the error by the court in, quote, finding that plaintiffs were not entitled to inspect more ballots after it was determined that the tabulators failed. Plaintiffs do not identify the ruling at issue, let alone the error of law related to it. Finally, plaintiff's last ground for a new trial is newly discovered evidence, and this is really what plaintiffs seem to be focusing on. But despite spending the bulk of their briefing and time before this court discussing various facts, plaintiffs only point to two grounds for a new trial based on newly discovered evidence. And even then, in their papers and today, they fail to engage in any way with the standards for granting this extraordinary remedy. First, the evidence must be material, Second, it must have existed at the time of the trial. Third, it could not have been discovered with reasonable diligence. And fourth, it would probably change the results. When these standards are carefully applied to each fact offered by plaintiffs and through the testimony of their counsel, their motion crumbles. Again, even sitting here today, even before the court today, plaintiffs still cannot point to any fact or piece of evidence that would probably change the result. They admit, quote, that a more complete ballot inspection is necessary to confirm. And before the court today, they asked that the court let them have another look around to confirm. For this reason alone, the motion based on newly discovered evidence fails. That the motion fails is doubly clear by looking at each, quote, fact in isolation. And there are two of them, again, Your Honor. First, plaintiffs point to the fact that certain ballots in Pinal County were not subject to adjudication on Election Day, but were subsequently counted during the recount. That's the claim they make most clearly in their reply. This information would not have changed the results of the trial. Plaintiff admits that in their papers, and they admitted that today before this court. They claim at most that this knowledge could have strengthened their request for new discovery. But that's not even true. Prior to trial, plaintiffs also put other similar evidence in their motion papers. For instance, in their motion for ballot inspection filed on December 12th at paragraph 17, they cited evidence from Navajo County that the tabulators used during the statewide recount, quote, identified two ballots that should have been sent to adjudication, but were not. Having more of the same evidence would not have changed the course of discovery, nor would it have changed the outcome of the trial. And before this court today, Plaintiffs make much of the fact that of their allegation that the secretary knew this prior to trial. But it's worth emphasizing that this is the only evidence plaintiffs now claim was, you know, quote, wrongly withheld by the secretary. But again, none of this information is material and it wasn't wrongly withheld. Under the recount order, the counties are required to report the results to the secretary. The secretary would provide the results to the court, and then the court was required to announce the results. So the second issue for newly discovered evidence is provisional voters. And this claim is quite narrow, despite the testimony of their counsel today. Plaintiffs claim that the list of Original voters they now have from Maricopa County and only Maricopa County entitles them to a new trial. It doesn't. As a threshold matter, this list could have been discovered much sooner with appropriate diligence. At a bare minimum, plaintiffs knew they needed this list when they filed their original contest on November 22nd. And certainly by November 9th, when the 
they filed their contest before this court. They <clears throat> list until December 12th. As this court well knows, days matter in election contests. These timeframes are very quick. In any event, this list of names proves nothing. It will not probably change the results of the trial, which is the actual standard for a Rule 59 motion. Plaintiffs have submitted no actual evidence that these registrations were inappropriately canceled, and they have admitted that they don't know why some of these registrations are canceled. They would have to do more investigation. And still, to this day, they have not pointed to a single vote from Maricopa County, a single voter who couldn't vote. Plaintiffs before the court today and in their papers and their reply attached two declarations from Mojave County. Your Honor, plaintiff's election contest, count two, talked about the wrongful exclusion of provisional voters in Maricopa County only. Evidence related to what happened to provisional ballots in Mojave County County is simply not relevant to a claim in the contest. So in the end, Your Honor, they've They've admitted that even with this list, they still need to do additional investigation to confirm. The last point I'd like to highlight for your honor on the newly discovered evidence claim is that their reply makes clear that plaintiffs aren't basing their motion on many of the things they originally asserted, including testimony from the Carrie Lake case, the results of the hand count, the fact that there was a smaller margin alone, and other issues in Pinal County, including ballots found during the recount. In the end, it makes sense that plaintiffs barely engage with the standards governing governing new trial motions. They can't meet the rules' strict requirements for this extraordinary remedy. Again, plaintiffs had a trial. They had an opportunity to put on their case. But this motion isn't about getting a new trial. It's about getting any evidence to support their existing claims, and apparently some new ones, something not permitted through a new trial motion, even if it were successful. While plaintiff's original motion is not clear, their reply makes clear that they want three things, and they've testified about some of them before the court today. One is apparently approximately 73,000 ballots. They would like to do their own hand recount on those, and those are ballots with an undervote in the AG case in all 15 counties. Second, they asked for provisional ballots in all counties that officials rejected on the grounds that the voter wasn't registered to vote if they had voted in prior races. This is a new request. Plaintiffs made this request to the court before. And it also, you know, relates to facts and allegations that are outside the contest statute that plaintiffs picked, the one that they filed. Third, they make another new request. This one, again, not made before, not even tied to a claim in the complaint, which is 73 ballots cast, in quote, by, cast by, quote, high propensity voters rejected for being out of precinct. These requests are not only extraordinary, but prohibited by law. For one thing, there is only one statute that authorizes discovery in election contests, contests that's ARS 16-677, which allows ballot inspection to, quote, prepare for trial. But plaintiffs aren't looking at ballots to prepare for trial. They are looking for ballots to find any evidence to support their claims. This sort of, of a fishing expedition has been expressly prohibited by the Supreme Court. That's grounds v. law, 67 Arizona 176. Further recounts, and today they asked for a recount. Recounts are strictly statutory and can be conducted only as authorized by statute. Statute, that's Barrera. And no authority exists in Arizona for an order for a manual recount for an election when requested by a contestant. 
particularly based on his suspicion and his testimony from counsel that had the recount been conducted differently, it would have been more favorable to him. Plaintiff's request for an ad hoc extra statutory recount must fail. Finally, I would like to touch briefly on the motion for an order reflecting additional rulings of the court, Your Honor. This motion is about revamping the record for appeal. It's not about putting on, quote, an accurate rendition of the proceedings on the record. And for the reasons set forth in our brief, multiple of these issues have either been decided by the court plainly or not decided by the court at all and aren't appropriate for an additional ruling. And with that, Your Honor, I would just like to say, close by saying the plaintiffs had their day in court. Plaintiffs were here. Defendants were here. The court was here. Plaintiffs admitted at their trial that they didn't have enough evidence to sustain their claims, despite having been permitted to review more ballots than in any other contest of cycle. Close elections are not unprecedented in Arizona. The 2016 congressional election, for instance, was separated by just 161 votes. And the legislature designed a process for close election recounts. Here, there was a full statewide recount, which did remedy some errors and identify votes in favor of the contestant. The recount process designed by the legislature as a safeguard worked. The rules do not allow for perpetual do-overs in election cases. The stakes are too high and the need for finality is too important. A hand count of tens of thousands of ballots six months after an election, following a contest, then following a statewide recount, was not part of the statutory scheme designed by the legislature for this election. As the Supreme Court held in Donaghy, a successful challenge months or years after an election would seriously erode the ability of state and local governments. That's true. The extraordinary and unprecedented relief that the plaintiffs are asking for would cause chaos. Chaos for the court, chaos for elections officials, chaos for the attorney general. Election contests would go on forever as the contestant would continue, could continue to look around for more new evidence indefinitely. And if the court had to oversee a full hand recount without rules or guidance from the legislature. And with that, Your Honor, I would ask that you deny um, the motion for a new trial and enter final judgment immediately as the statute requires. All right. Thank you, Ms. Dana. Mr. Morgan, you next? Uh, I am, Your Honor. Thank you. Craig Morgan for the Secretary of State, Adrian Fontes. Um, I generally join in and agree with everything Ms. Daneman said. I'm going to hit a few points if it's okay with the court. Um, First, I want to talk about the aspersions that have been cast against my predecessor and the prior administration. Judge, they did nothing wrong. They did nothing unethical or remotely prejudicial to the contestant's case. Arizona law is clear. The Secretary of State must present recount results to the court, and only the court can announce the results of a recount, ARS 16665. Judge Thomason's order in Maricopa County precluded others from announcing the results of the recount. No records were to be released until that court certified the results. Paragraph F of his order, it's it's in the record. And the parties were to keep confidential all information acquired that would disclose an elector's vote. That's paragraph G. The issues discovered in Pinal County during that recount, Your Honor, would have made no difference to this lawsuit. None whatsoever. Judge, Arizonans deserve finality in the 2022 general election. 
Every day this case exists without a final judgment is another day that the contestee and his friends and his colleagues and his constituents can continue to impugn the validity of our election processes in Arizona, impugn the integrity of those public servants who have dedicated themselves and their professional careers to preserving our democracy for future generations and cast doubt on the very foundation of our nation, free, full, and fair elections. Arizonans need this action to come to an end, and Arizona's election contest statute mandates that it does so. Now, even assuming everything that the contestee asserts is plausible or even true, it doesn't matter. Judge, we had the luxury of a statutory recount. That process worked, Your Honor. The concerns in Pinal County were identified because of that recount, and the results of this race were verified and validated. Chris Mays is our lawfully elected attorney general. Mr. Hamlet doesn't like that outcome. That's the correct outcome. What the contestee wants here, Your Honor, is extra statutory relief. It's unavailable as a matter of law, and it flies in the face of the narrow and express relief to which he is entitled. Relief that he has availed himself of in this election contest, albeit unsuccessfully. The contestee, Your Honor, he wants to try again. He wants to make his own rules of what an election contest can be. And even after losing in a lawful recount, which he has not challenged or appealed in any way, as far as I'm aware, he wants a second bite at the apple, arguably a third in light of the recount. Is someone attempting to seize control of the office of Arizona's chief legal officer, one would think that the contestee would appreciate the irony of asking this court to afford him legal relief that is unprecedented, unavailable as a matter of law, and flies in the face of the rule of law. It's long past time for this case to end, Judge. No new trial, no second recount, no expect, no expanded election contest. Please deny Mr. Hamden's motion in our final judgment. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Morgan. Mr. LaRue. Thank you, Your Honor. Maricopa County has nothing to add to the argument that was made by uh, the governor and the secretary of state. Thank you, Mr. LaRue. Mr. Gierkowitz? Just briefly, Your Honor, if I may. <clears throat> so I'm not exactly clear what relief the plaintiffs are requesting, but if there's any further indication that they want to continue inspecting or counting Kima County ballots, we would very much object to that. Uh, the court-ordered inspection here was held on December 22nd, and not a single error was found in the results um, as far as the court's jurisdiction, uh, I believe ARS 16-676 time bars any further contest. And furthermore, um, we discussed a long time ago the interplay of the contest statutes and the recount statutes. ARS 16-667 stays a recount while a contest is being mounted. What's the purpose of that statute? Why, why do we stay the recount while a contest is going forward? Because that is the opportunity to determine the validity of the pled contests. And that's what happened in this particular case. Plaintiffs were given an opportunity to try and prove the allegations they made in their contest. That statewide recount was stayed to give this court the opportunity to determine the results based on this contest. Once that contest was over, however, and this court announced its result, the recount was reinstated and the Maricopa Superior Court 
announced the final results in the recount for the state. That also divested this court from further jurisdiction to entertain a further contest. The final results were announced. It could not be collaterally attacked in this court. The only path for relief at that point would have been appeal of the Maricopa Superior Court's order to the Court of Appeals. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Has anybody else wanted to add anything? Or? Your Honor. Mr. Davis? Your Honor, uh, Mahala County is here only to present our uh, supplementary joiner for the defendant's motion when you feel it timely to argue such. You're talking about the... Uh, the compensation here. Yeah, the compensation. We're not there yet. All right, thank you, Mr. Davis. All right, uh, anybody, the response from the uh, plaintiffs then? Okay. I'm assuming this this time it'll be Ms. Wright followed by Mr. Zavallov. Yes. I've got that down now. And I guess, I don't, how long do you think you're going to go? I, I'm not, all right. My court reporter is going to need a break whenever we're done. So she's been going for an hour and 20. Do you want to take a break now, Your Honor? I'm fine with that. I do want to take 15 minutes. We'll, we'll take a break because the court reporter shouldn't go more than an hour and a half. All right, we're going to, uh, we're going to take a brief recess. I'm going to put everybody on mute. Uh, you guys stay there. I'm going to go in the back and hide. Uh, or not hide, just go in the back. Uh, we'll stand at recess. Yeah. Thank you, Your Honor. You better hide, Judge. You better hide. Oh, shucks. It's really, um, let me hit pause so I am not distracted by sound in my ears. Okay. It is really hard for me to determine where we stand right now with this, with this trial. Um, and for those that are just coming in, we just got a 15 minute break. I have no idea how long this is going to go for, but hopefully it's not much longer because we're the family. They're coming here and we're going to go play mini golf. So <laughs> we may have to postpone the mini golf. And uh, I'm sure the wife's not going to be too happy about that. Anyways, so on one hand, I believe that Jennifer Wright, she came ready, armed, and loaded, uh, making a solid case as to why they should have a new trial. And this was this was very, very different from the original trial. Um, so Abe Hamaday, his original attorney, Tim Lasota, that was his attorney back in December, right? He came to court. A- Abe, Abe Hamaday had the task of proving <laughs> that there was 280 votes or 500 something at the time before the Pinal County uh, recount results were published. You know, that there was 500 or something illegal votes and failed to do that whatsoever. The attorney, Tim Lasota, was basically like, hey, sorry, we don't have any evidence, Judge. Uh, my bad. You know, I know you're going to drop the case. I've basically conceded defeat here. But just know, uh, we filed this complaint in good faith. And please don't sanction me, Judge. Please. For the love of God, I've seen all these other attorneys that have brought election challenges and they got sanctioned. And I'm just asking you, please don't sanction me. That was his legal argument at trial. So it was no wonder to me why they dismissed the case. <laughs> Super Buff Shaft $20 says, do you think Alexis has an OnlyFans page? I don't know. I don't know. But I wouldn't be paying her any money. That hoe sitting there with her arms crossed, condescending as, as all get out. All right. She won't be getting any money from me. And because I'm married. But um, 
Yeah, I guess you you could try looking her up. She looks like a hoe. She probably does have an OnlyFans page. But uh, yeah. So you. <laughs> so where where was I? Jennifer Wright. That's right. That's right. I wanted to talk about Jennifer Wright. So Tim Lasota was the original attorney, and after the case was dismissed, then Jennifer Wright entered the fold. Abe Hamaday partnered up with Jennifer Wright, the former assistant attorney general and alumni of True the Vote, the election integrity uh, group that put out the movie 2000 Mules and whatnot. And she was also the head of the election integrity unit in Mark Burnovich's office. And, you know, I know uh, that has a negative connotation, but she actually has integrity. And from what I've heard, you know, she was basically sidelined the entire 2020 election uh, during the audit and all that stuff. Uh, she actually is a good person, right? So, and she knows what she's doing. She knows the law, the statute, uh, inside and out. She knows how to examine an election and present an election complaint. So after the case got dismissed, Abe Hamaday partnered up with her, and they put together a pretty solid case. Now, what's unfortunate here is that this wasn't the case that they presented in December, because I have a feeling I'm a little bit concerned here that what this is going to come down to is what that Alexis Ho said. You know, you had your day in court, you had your chance, and you went to court and you said you didn't have any evidence. So now you want a new trial. You want a do-over. And that's not how it works. The, the statute in Arizona says that, says that you have five days to file a complaint. And, uh, you know, you're not allowed to just try to present an entirely new argument and seek a new trial because that ship has sailed. You know, that window is already closed. That's what the attorneys for Maricopa County are saying. And I'm a little concerned here that the total blunder by Tim Lasota back in December is going to carry over into the judge's decision-making here. But at the same time, like I said, I feel like Jennifer Wright laid out a solid argument for a new trial. You know, basically what she said was that, uh, you know, in the original uh in the original trial, the judge granted Abe Hamaday's legal team the ability to inspect a small handful of ballots because Hamaday's original argument was that there was undervotes, lots of undervotes, meaning ballots where the voter did not mark either candidate. They didn't vote for anybody, right? And, and Hamaday believed that this was the result of Dominion machines or ES&S machines misreading the ballots like the voter actually did vote however the machine did not pick up the vote so the judge was like all right i'll let you look at a few ballots i'll let you look at a small handful and unfortunately out of that small handful they only found a couple of votes that were uh said to have been undervoted by the machines but when they inspected them when humans inspected them they found a couple that actually were filled in by the voter, but the Dominion machine said that they were undervotes, right? So they found a couple, but remember, you have to show enough votes to clear that margin of victory, and they failed to do that. 
So what Jennifer Wright said is basically she brought up the fact that Katie Hobbs withheld the um, the evidence from Pinal County, the recount results, the recount, which showed a net gain for Abraham Hamaday of like 300 votes. Katie Hobbs had this information prior to the trial. In fact, there's some accounts that say Katie Hobbs had this information two weeks before the trial. But she failed to disclose the results of that recount uh, to Abraham Hamaday's legal counsel and the judge. And as a result, you know, this judge, when Hamaday was asking for a ballot inspection, he said, yeah, you can look at a handful of ballots, but it's very possible that if that judge had seen the results of Pinal County's recount, that he would have allowed a, a much wider inspection. Because clearly what happened in Pinal County showed that there was a lot of problems. So the, the, the fact is, Katie Hobbs withheld this evidence, and it affected the judge's decision regarding that ballot inspection. Um, and, and so I think it's very important that, that Jennifer Wright presented this argument to the judge. Because if you think about it, Katie Hobbs slighted the judge by not revealing the results of Pinal's recount. She didn't just withhold the evidence from Abraham Hamaday and his attorney. She withheld the evidence from the judge. So what I'm hoping here is that the judge thinks about that and looks at the facts and gets pissed off at Katie Hobbs and says, you know what, screw you. You tried to withhold evidence from me. All right, well, I'm going to give this guy a new trial. That's what I'm hoping. All right, that's my... <laughs> That's my ace in the hole, <laughs> you know? And so there's that. Uh, Jennifer Wright also made a solid case that there was, I mean, there was a lot of undervotes. 76,000 statewide undervotes, which is ri a ridiculously high amount. I mean, these are people that apparently just didn't vote for anybody. And it, it gets sent to a uh, adjudication, I believe. Right. Seventy six thousand people apparently didn't vote for either candidate statewide. And we know based on that small sample of ballots that they inspected back in December, that there were several ballots that were marked, but the machines did not uh, tabulate it. And Scott Jarrett could not provide an explanation for why that happened. So reason would tell you. All right. Well, if a small inspection of the ballot showed us a few undervotes that weren't counted by the machines, then a larger inspection would show even more, and quite possibly more than the margin of victory of 280 votes. When you have a number like 76,000, chances are we can probably find 280 votes uh, from people that filled out their ballot, but the machines didn't tabulate it. Right? So that was another argument. And then, of course, we have the provisional ballots. And what we learned is that they have hundreds of declarations, sworn affidavits from voters, from people who tried to vote on Election Day, but were told that they weren't registered to vote. And what uh, Jennifer Wright and Abe Hamaday did was they looked up the registration of the voting record file and found that these people were registered to vote, but their registration was erroneously canceled. For no apparent reason. So all these people that 
We're told, you know, you're not registered to vote. Uh, these were legal voters. Okay, so that's the summation of Abraham Hamaday and Jennifer Wright and uh, what's the other guy? Is it Tim Lasota? Yeah, that's their argument. But on the other hand, you have the uh, defendant's counsel who basically says, all right, so you got declarations from people uh, you know, who, who were told they weren't registered to vote, but you failed to actually prove that their registration was erroneously canceled. You failed to provide any evidence that their registration was canceled because, you know, th this could be some instance where somebody moved to another county, uh, they tried to vote, and they, I don't know, they... They didn't re-register or change their address or something like that. You know, or it could be a lot of people showed up on election day and uh, I, I don't think they have same day registration in Arizona, do they? So they might have been people that showed up on election day, not registered to vote, and they thought that they could same day register, but they couldn't. I don't know, something like that. It, it could be you have to show that not only were the these people's uh, voter registrations canceled, but you have to kind of prove that it was done erroneously, right? And so the defendant's attorneys, they kind of make an, uh, an argument, kind of a solid argument on that. And they also say that, you know, these 200 or so uh, affidavits, I was under the impression this entire time that all these affidavits are from the 2022 election, right? And what I learned is that, in fact, they have affidavits from people from 2018, from 2020, and from 2022. And I think they said something along the lines of, and we have a few from 2022. Okay, so originally... Because I knew about these affidavits. I was thinking to myself, all right, if you got 250 affidavits of people who say that their registration was erroneously canceled and their ballots weren't counted, well, that's pretty damn close to the margin of victory. And that's a pretty solid, you know, argument. That's that's pretty substantial evidence there. But now that I learned that these affidavits are a mixture of 2018, 2020, and 2022 and it sounds like the majority are from prior elections that evidence doesn't sound as solid as i once uh, as i originally thought that it was and then you have the other aspect of this the defendant's counsel they kept making this statement that you know the voters they deserve finality in elections you know we have to have finality where six months or whatever since the election and this is a complete and total disruption of the of the democratic process and elections are supposed to be certified quickly and challenged quickly so that the rightful constitutionally elected person can be sworn into office and 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 begin doing their job and they kept making this argument you know pointing back to the statute which unfortunately does lay out a very uh, rapid, basically the election challenge statute in Arizona, 
it's 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 ridiculous. It says that you have to challenge an election within five days, a, a five day window between when the election occurs and when they're actually sworn into office. I'm not sure what the actual dates are, but there's a five day window that you have to file these election challenges in Arizona somewhere between when the election occurs and when they're sworn into office. And so the defendant's counsel, they keep making this argument that basically it's just been too much time. You know, they assumed uh, Chris Mays assumed office like 100 days ago. And here we are seven months after the election. And we're still talking about this. And it's basically just a matter of some election denying conspiracy theorists trying to perpetuate false claims and disrupt the, the, the election process um, because they're sore losers or, or, you know, people will say, oh, they're just grifting, blah, 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 blah. And so I, I, I think it really comes down to this judge, obviously, this judge and how he perceives the situation. You know, in Carrie Lake's case, I've, I already know that that judge is completely compromised. Yeah, I don't have any doubt in my mind that that judge, Judge Thompson, is completely compromised with no intention of looking at actual evidence and his only goal is to dismiss Carrie Lake's case, punt it back to the appellate court and the Arizona Supreme Court based on the fact that he, he listened to actual evidence of fraud, voter disenfranchisement, right? He listened to hundreds of thousands of ballots lacking chain of custody. He listened to a compelling testimony from Clay Parikh, who alleged that there was intentional manipulation of the ballot-on-demand printers to print 19-inch ballots on 20-inch paper. He listened to all that, and he still dismissed the case. He also just rejected Kerry Lake's uh, uh, motion for a reconsideration of the logic and accuracy testing count, and he set an unreasonably high burden on Kerry Lake, which flies in the face of 100, 100 years of court precedent, which makes it impossible for Carrie Lake to actually succeed. So I know, I know what that judge is up to. But in this case with Abraham Amadei, I don't know. I don't know. Because the last time they went to court, it wasn't the judge's fault. The judge, if I was that judge, I would have dismissed the case too. And that's me being real with you. If I was the judge presiding over Abraham Hamaday's original, uh, the, the original trial, and I listened to Tim Lasota come in and say, yeah, we don't have any evidence, my bad, please don't sanction me. I mean, what do you expect him to do? So I really can't say with any certainty which way this is going to go. I, I don't know. I heard compelling arguments from Jennifer Wright. I believe Jennifer Wright, with her um, tenure as the election, head of the Election Integrity Unit, Assistant Attorney General, and her time with True the Vote, she knows exactly what she's doing. And she crafted a legal argument which fits within the parameters of the statute for challenging an election. And this is uh, about as good as it gets as far as legal counsel. And a legal argument, right? This, that's, this is about as good as it gets. 
But I also heard from the defendant's counsel some arguments which present challenges, uh, hurdles, which could easily sway that judge into dismissing this motion. So that's where I'm at right now. I'm more, I'll, I'll set, I said it before and I'll say it again. I'm more optimistic about this than I am with Carrie Lake's case. And I still feel that way. <laughs> you know, um, I still feel that way. I still feel more optimistic about this than I do about Carrie Lake's case. And that's just me being honest. Even though Carrie Lake has substantial evidence of fraud, substantial, undeniable evidence of fraud. Hell, even Maricopa County, their attorneys commissioned an investigation into the machine breakdowns, and they even basically admitted that the, the, the printers were rigged up to print out 19-inch ballots on 20-inch paper. They admitted that. They published that. The evidence is undeniable. But because of the parameters that this judge has set, she has, she is faced with a task that is damn near impossible and intentionally so. So, I'll just say it this way. If Abraham Hamaday doesn't get a new trial, um, <laughs> the writing's on the wall for Carrie Lake, you know, and uh, I find it, it's a strange coincidence, right, that we're here again. Because back in December... Abraham Hamaday's trial and Carrie Lake's trial and, and Mark Fincham's trial all ran back to back. And so I'm having a little bit of deja vu here because I was all optimistic about Abe Hamaday and Carrie Lake. And then I watched Abe Hamaday's uh, case get dismissed. And that really just bummed me out. And then I still held on for hope with Carrie Lake all the way till the end. And then Christmas Eve, that was dismissed too. Right, and here we are, six months later. We're we're on the on the cusp of a decision for Abe Hamaday, and Carrie Lake is up to bat next tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, you know, here we sit. Like, I don't know, man. <laughs> I just I just feel like I, I got to manage my expectations a little bit. I'm optimistic about Abe Hamaday, but uh. We've been here before. What do we? What can I say? Okay, so it looks like we're back up and running. And that sounds like Jennifer Wright. Registered. Oh, sorry, I didn't have the sound on. In Maricopa. She thought... She could go vote because she had recognized there was a problem and tried to fix it. Your Honor, I've got hundreds more like this voter, and my intent for going forward, if we want to do an actual offer of proof and submit these declarations, I'd be happy to do that. Um, we can do that and make sure that it does not part, become part of the public record. Um, uh, information. Button, but we've got hundreds of these individuals that we believe can come into court and testify and be cross-examined as to what their experience was. But these are hundreds of votes that were not counted. So again, we're not asking for a recount. We're asking for these to be reviewed. And we can discuss more thoroughly at trial 
as to how we think that this happened, um, how the service Arizona and you know Arizona voter information database, the changes that were made over the course of the past few years. Again, good intention changes that resulted in more than a thousand people being disenfranchised. So, um, so again, as, as, as was said by the outside, we've submitted no actual evidence, and that is true, but that's what a trial is for. I think we've shown that, it, that we have enough evidence to bring us to trial so that you can more thoroughly examine the issues and decide for yourself which ballots should be counted and which should not. I think we've also proven, or I believe we've proven, that there's a need to see how the undervotes were cast. We're talking about a margin at this point of 280 votes. And we believe that there's at least 466 votes that were not cast, uh, that were recorded as undervotes based off of the just the calculations of 76,000 ballots. Either issue, 466, or the, the number of ballots that we uh, found, the over 1,000 people that were disenfranchised. Either issue alone, evidence is that if we were granted a new trial, the outcome would be different. And by the end of the trial, again, we are not asking you to speculate. We'll ask you to count the votes. And we believe that the evidence is very clear that when we count those votes, Mr. Hamaday will be Arizona's Attorney General. I just wanted to touch, I, I think you can do this for yourself, but I, I encourage you to read the Maricopa County recount order. Um, I've read it several times over and over, and I don't see how it would have prejudiced the recount for her to confirm undervotes were in fact a problem. And certainly she had no authority or nothing would compel her at trial to say that there was zero evidence that supported that undervotes were by and large not being counted, or real ballot votes were not being counted. And again, going back to the provisional votes, we believe that they are going to break for a promenade based off of the fact that election day voters by and large chose a promenade. Regardless of their voter registration, 69.21% of voters on election day cast their vote for a promenade. 28.72% cast them for Chris Mays. This is all part of the Canvas data. We believe that once we count the votes, it will show, again, I think I had the delta of, it would be 700 and some odd votes for aid, and it would be uh, 300 and some odd votes, if I remember correctly, 200 and some odd votes for Chris Mays, and the delta was over 400, with Abe Hamaday winning by about 120 votes. We think this is worthy of the court's time and attention. We think you're in the best position to be able to resolve the issues that remain. We believe that that's what Arizona's courts were designed for. And we believe that Arizona's rules of you know, fundamental fairness, making sure that we get things right, not that we just speed through them, is important to the voters and to the citizens, to the constituents, to the people of the state. We thank you for your time, Your Honor. Thank you, Ms. Wright. Mr. Zavalos, did you want to add? Very great, Very One thing stood out today with me 
And I hope with the court that all we're doing is asking this court to allow that process to go forward to, in fact, count the votes. It is a right that is hollow. If, as Jefferson said, the majority who vote really to stop describe our government as a democracy, when in fact, if you don't count all the lawful votes, I've heard not one word in here today from our opposition, not one word that the votes that we found were illegal or in any way not cast. What you have heard, what the record does show, is that the votes that were not counted should have been counted. And so if that's the case, the court has to have some basis upon which, as it does every single day in criminal and civil cases that come before it, to look at that evidence, give it that amount of weight under the rules of evidence it chooses to find. And by the way, your findings on that weight cannot, and I do not believe, would ever be destroyed served by higher court, because you're the judge of that. But to draw direct evidence and something that's been left out of this proceeding, circumstantial evidence that goes on every single day in every civil and criminal proceeding, whether it's product liability, antitrust, it doesn't matter. It's evidence under our rules, whether the rules in Arizona and every state I practice, that that evidence is important and acceptable evidence, given the way it has to be given I have nothing further to say except one thing that troubles me greatly. And maybe it's because I'm a little older than some people in here and perhaps everyone in here. (laughs) But I'm greatly concerned about something. And maybe if people that have been doing this, as I have, coming on 44 years of litigation, our country's in trouble because people are losing confidence and faith in their elected officials. We received a gift from our founding fathers, in my judgment, forgive me for saying it, but I've earned this in my age, from God. And it is no wonder that when we have people who are entrusted with the sanctity of our system, like Ms. Hobbs, whose conduct in this case has troubled me greatly, and I, I have to be careful, she's a public official, and I'm old school, so I need to be cautious in my words. But, Your Honor, withholding votes, if delivered, is the stuff that makes some government agencies, at least in the past, begin grand jury proceedings. But if reckless and or by innocent mistake, where was the lawyer representing Ms. Hobbs? As I had to recently in a brief I wrote to a court and discovered, oops, I was wrong. I didn't wait to come back from my neighbor. I'm your neighbor. I'm down in Henderson, Nevada, and in Phoenix working. I didn't wait. I was writing that thing in the car and my, to tell the judge I apologize. I made a mistake. Why did I do that? Because it was a hotly contested issue, as this one is. And my duty as an officer of the court and the officer of the court for Ms. Hopps should come forward. Because we don't know whether what we say to a judge, like yourself, Your Honor, or any other judge, How that court, how that judge might interpret that information. 
We don't have the privilege or the right to withhold information from a jury or a judge that's lawful because we can't predict or look back with 2020 hindsight what a judge would have done. I can't sit here and opine, and I would be unethical for me even to suggest what you may or may not have done, but you were deprived of that right. That's your prerogative, not a lawyer, nobody else. And it's your court that preserves the integrity of our country and it's what will save our country from some of the turmoil we're seeking. And it's no wonder we come to court because it is the courts, a free jury, a fair jury that protects our society and our integrity. And judge, that is what has been put in your lap. And I would apologize to you for having that burden, but I thank you for that because it is people and judges like you that protect the sanctity of our country and can overcome the whims and travesties of the days we see today. I thank you for being permitted, Prabhupada, to appear before you. It was an honor. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Zabalas. I guess uh, how we're going to do this now, I, I, I would like to address the, uh, I'm going to take under advisement the motion to for a new trial, and that, that means I'm going to make a ruling hopefully within the next couple of weeks. And I, uh, I'm, I put a date on here that I want to get it done, but I won't mentioned that out loud. Uh, the, uh, the, the other issues that are still pending, I, I, I think the attorney's fees issue uh, is something I, I probably don't need oral argument on. I, I can make a decision on that based on uh, the pleadings that I've read, and I, I'll, I'll make that decision, you know, and it could be dependent on the ruling for a new trial as well. So I'm going to wait on that. I do think that we should address the, the compensation issue. And I, I don't think anybody opposed the compensation. The issue was uh, the uh, the amount. And I guess I was looking and didn't see uh, other than one reference to uh, something that the judge in the uh, governor's case did. I didn't see any history of, of what judges have done in compensating ballot inspectors in the past. And maybe, I'll, you know, so I, I guess I would just like uh, – that was originally filed by Navajo. I guess I could let them start, and anybody that joined in on that can speak uh, to it. And uh, just, just start that process just to argue that today. And I know the uh, plaintiff, uh, is, is, again, doesn't oppose it, but opposes the amounts. And I'll let somebody argue that for them today. So, Mr. Moore, if you want to go first. Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, the Navajo County uh, filed uh, a motion uh, in this case uh, that uh, asking that uh, the ballot inspectors within uh, our county be uh, compensated for their efforts and uh, time in uh, participating in the uh, in this procedure. Um, it really came out of uh, a conversation that uh, we had where one of our uh, inspectors brought the issue up, um, and uh, they were kind of assuming that uh, we would not they wouldn't be getting compensated and. And uh, I actually informed them that uh, the statute, specifically ARS 16677C, um, uh, made uh, uh, compensation for the ballot inspectors uh, uh, a requirement uh, of the losing party. And so um, we collected uh, information from each of the uh, ballot inspectors within our own county for the time that they put into uh, the ballot inspection process, including uh, their uh, time inspecting, uh, as well as collecting information on uh, the mileage uh, that they put in. Um, uh, and so 
I didn't specify anything in the motion that's going to help the court out with regard to a suggestion for what the compensation should be. And the reason I didn't is because uh, the statute doesn't give us any guidance on what the compensation ought to be. Um, and I really don't necessarily feel like uh, the county or my county is in a position to uh, be uh, an advocate, uh, you know, uh, for these folks. We're just pointing out that um, uh, the statute does provide uh, a mandatory compensation and the, that be paid by the losing party. And so uh, I'm going to leave it to the real parties in interest uh, to uh, make uh, argument about what they think that compensation should be. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, at, at a minimum, uh, it would probably be, you know, uh, insulting uh, to the ballot inspectors to not at least pay them uh, minimum wage uh, and, and to compensate them for their uh, mileage. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, really the only thing I have to say about it. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Moore. Uh, who else? Does anybody want to address? I know Mr. Davis is ready, but I'm going to wait. Oh, yeah. Anybody from uh, Mr. Anneman or Mr. Morgan? Craig Morgan, Your Honor. No, sir. Thank you. I thank you, Mr. Morgan. Ms. Anneman. No, Your Honor. I think the statute isn't clear about exactly what should be assessed in all circumstances, but it, it does say that the compensation shall be fixed as, as costs, and we submitted to the court the actual cost of our inspector's time. Yeah, and that was I mean, one of the inspectors, at least, was a lawyer making a, a large amount of money per hour. Was that one of the problems? Yeah. That's one of the things that came up. Mr. LaRue, did you want to address that? No, Your Honor. Thank you, though. All right. And Mr. Davis, here in the courtroom, you wanted to address that? Yes, Your Honor. Only briefly. We submit, since the statute does not provide any form of formula or equation, only a reference or a guide that you may base your decision off of. We joined in Navajo and saying that we leave it up to the court. We included the attorney's hourly rate and we referred as a formula to rule 54 of the civil rules of, of rules of civil procedure only as a guide um, that you may consider when assessing compensation. Thank you. All right, thank you. Uh, Ms. Wright or who, Mr. Culligan? Thank you, Your Honor. Can you spell your name for the court reporter? Yes, Your Honor. K. O L O D I N. Culloden. I'll be extremely brief. Uh, we've heard a suggestion uh, minimum wage be the level for the inspection, perfectly acceptable to Mr. Hamaday. We've, we've actually submitted um, some material in our briefing showing that a rate of about $25 an hour would be appropriate, obviously. Um, that would also be acceptable to Mr. Hamaday. But, but fundamentally, we are confident that we're going to prevail in this matter, Your Honor. And so to us, this issue, we would leave it in the court's discretion where to set that. All right. And I think uh, as, as I listen to this, I think that's that's where it is. It's, I mean, I actually have to make a ruling on this motion for new trial. That affects that ruling as well. So, again, it's order taking all the pending motions under advisement. Is there anything else you need to take up today, Ms. Wright? Your Honor. Mr. Eckstein, I'll wait. I'll ask you in a second. Okay. Thank you. No, Your Honor. Thank you for your consideration. Thank you. Mr. Eckstein. Yes. Uh, the plaintiffs raised Hunt v. Campbell in their rebuttal argument. Ms. Daneman did not mention the words Hunt v. Campbell. Uh, I'm not objecting to their mentioning Hunt v. Campbell, but, Your Honor, when you read the case, 
you will see that that case is so different than uh, what is before you. Mr. Jackson, I don't want to reopen arguments. Uh, if I let you talk much more, I was going to let, I'll have to let well, someone I just, else. Begin. I just want to make one point. The, the point is that in Huffy Campbell, the party stipulated to the procedure okay. and to the recount. And it was before we had a statute that actually dealt with recount. So all that stuff is different, and I'll definitely uh, review all of that. All right? Thank you, uh, Your Honor. All right. It's ordered taking this matter under advisement. We'll stand at recess. And you, I don't control the sheet. Are we excused, Your Honor? Everybody's excused. All right, so that's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the judge, he's going to be taking his, uh, he's going to make his decision in a couple of weeks. Let's put it that way, all right? So he's going to take this uh, motion for a new trial under advisement. We won't know today what he's going to do. We have to wait and see, which is unfortunate uh, because it's really, really hard to say where we stand and where this is going to go. Unfortunately, I don't know enough about this judge and I think that Jennifer Wright made absolutely rock-solid arguments as to why they should proceed with a new trial. And I love that she actually rebutted the defendant's counsel who said, oh, you haven't presented any evidence. You say that there were people's voter registrations being erroneously canceled, but you failed to present any evidence. Jennifer Wright rebutted that by saying, well, that's why I'm asking for a new trial. This is oral argument seeking a new trial. So we're prepared to submit all of these affidavits and all of our evidence at trial. <laughs> this really isn't the venue for that. So one of the central arguments from the defendant's counsel that I was a little bit concerned about, she actually shut that right down. And I think she did a phenomenal job, especially uh, compared to Abe Hamaday's previous uh debacle back in December with Tim Lasota. So I'm still fairly optimistic, but, you know, I've been around this merry-go-round for a couple of years now, and I know not to get my hopes too high. So I would say prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. So that's Abe Hamaday, and tomorrow is Carrie Lake, and of course we're going to live stream that as well. Be sure to subscribe to this channel, click that like button, and tune in uh, but right now, I'm going to go play mini golf with the family. They're all waiting for me. So, thanks for watching, and I will see you next time. When it comes to stubborn belly fat, we're all searching for a miracle pill. Generally, you have to use multiple products that target belly fat differently to manage excess weight around the stomach. Some products may focus on abdominal exercises or dietary changes, while others might focus on boosting metabolism or controlling cravings. But believe it or not, I may have found a solution that removes the need for juggling through multiple weight management products. It's called Belly Trim, and it's more effective at targeting belly fat, enhancing metabolism, and promoting a toned midsection better than most weight management products I've seen typically found on store shelves. Tens of thousands of five-star reviews back up the notion that Belly Trim is not only a breakthrough in a bottle, but that it also removes the need for us to use countless diet pills and fat-burning supplements. But there's more. If you place your order for Belly Trim now, you'll also receive 51% off free VIP live health and fitness coaching for life, two free new ebooks titled Top 10 Foods That Burn Belly Fat, and Top 10 Exercises to Reduce Belly Fat, a 60-day satisfaction guarantee, and last but not least, free shipping. Simply go to www.trimwithus.com. That's www.trimwithus.com to take advantage of this limited-time deal before they sell out. Once again, that's www.trimwithus.com. Order now. 
Energy bills are rising at a historic rate, and there's no end in sight. Talk to enough people, and you'll soon realize nearly everyone's shocked at their recent electricity bills. Some studies reveal energy costs have skyrocketed by as high as 60% in as little as two years. That's why tens of thousands are installing this magical little device from SavePowerBills.com to help slash their energy bills. This sophisticated gadget stabilizes electrical currents, reduces dirty electricity, and helps protect your appliances and electronics. Simply plug it into your home's wall outlet to help lower energy consumption and ultimately help reduce your power bills every month. Countless five-star reviews back up the notion that this device is one of the most efficient ways to save money while beating the greedy power companies. But there's more. If you order now, you'll also receive 65% off, fast shipping within the USA, hassle-free returns, and last but not least, a 60-day satisfaction guarantee. Just go to SavePowerBills.com to take advantage of this limited-time deal before they sell out. Once again, that's SavePowerBills.com. Violent crime across the U.S. has skyrocketed. Just recently, a politician was carjacked by three armed attackers outside his home in Washington, D.C. This comes several months after another politician was assaulted in the elevator of her building. Between mass shootings, kidnappings, burglaries, and carjackings, it's never been more vital to learn how to protect yourself. This is why tens of thousands are choosing the Fighter Flare Flashlight. The Fighter Flare Flashlight has awed people with a wonderful design and massive light output. On top of an ultra-bright 800-lumen light, it boasts powerful strobe lighting modes for self-defense, a glass breaking hammer, a built-in power bank, solar-powered recharging, rope cutter, siren, and much more. Countless five-star reviews back up the notion that this flashlight is the latest and greatest in the EDC market. But there's more. If you place your order for the Fighter Flare flashlight now, you'll also receive 66% off, free express shipping, and last but not least, a 100% lifetime guaranteed replacement. Simply go to www.fighterflare.com to take advantage of this limited-time deal before they sell out. www.fighterflare.com. Order now.